Hello and welcome to The World in 30 Minutes, the podcast on the events, policies and ideas that will shape the world from the European Council on Foreign Relations. My name is Mark Leonard. I'm director of ECFR. And this week, I am joining you live from the World Economic Forum, which is the annual event where the global overclass joins for a few days in the mountains to talk about improving the state of the world. It has become such an intrinsic part of globalization that Samuel Huntington in 2004 coined the term Davos man to talk about how a new breed of human beings has been developed who saw borders as a problem for their future of, uh, of, of a world that was going to be united by capital and global cooperation. But Davos man looks pretty out of place this week um, as geopolitics has come to define the events uh, here up in the mountains. I'm very happy to be joined by a special guest, Yara Bayumi, who is the world editor on the New York Times opinion section, who has been carefully watching many of the, the big speeches and debates that have been taking place in Davos this year. So Yara, what do you think the big themes were? I mean, it's no surprise, Mark, that the biggest theme um, overriding all, all of the conference, all of the all of the conference this week has been Russia's war in in Ukraine. Um, and I think one of the th- one of the main sort of themes uh, that I've that I've noticed is just how much there's been a lot of debate about the extent to which. Western support should extend to Ukraine, um, whether there should be, you know, what is what is the actual goal that the West wants to achieve? Is it this idea of weakening Russia completely um, or is it the idea of supporting Ukraine to the extent that it can be in a strong position to negotiate to negotiate peace terms? And, I, and I've heard and, and been involved in a lot of interesting conversations. Um, along those lines. So there have been some like big famous platform speeches. Zelensky wasn't here in person, but he was beamed in in his now familiar military fatigues. What did you make of his speech? I mean, I think he is, um, and again, not, not a particularly kind of insightful thing to say so far, but he has really excelled in winning, at least in the information uh, warfare warfare space. He calibrates and knows who his audience is very well and how to tailor how to tailor that message to his audience. So and what I, was he saying here? Well, I think he, I mean, here he was really making a very strong point of the need for the West to continue supporting Ukraine because it's not just about Ukraine winning. It is about uh, the danger to to the West, to the world, if Russia um, were allowed to continue in its aggression and sort of succeeds in, in any of its aims in, in Ukraine. And I think he had a pretty receptive audience. I don't know what you thought about that, but I think he had a pretty well, standing ovation, which is quite unusual, particularly for someone who's not even there. Exactly. <laughs> um, so, so he was made. So he, kind of, I think he knew he knew what he was saying, and he, you know, he had like a very particular message, right, about um, continuing continuing the sanctions, um, the oil embargo, um, encouraging uh, co- companies to leave to leave Russia. And of course, um, over over overlaying all of this, of course, is um, 
uh, you know, um, as a strong demand for for continued military assistance to Ukraine. And so I think that's I mean, that was sort of the main main thing I took away from him. Yeah, more sanctions, more weapons. But also, I think he called on on uh, companies to come and help rebuild Ukraine after the war as well. Yes, I mean, I think the rebuilding uh, part of this equation has also been a very interesting part um, of, you know, of the conversations here at Davos. Like, is it where where are these funds going to come from? Um, is there a bigger role for the EU to play here, um, given that the United States has pretty much borne the brunt or or has been the sort of uh, biggest military assistance um, sort of donor. And so is there like more a bigger role for the EU to play in that? But there, of course, there's also the question of the frozen, um, the frozen Russian funds, right? And whether these might also play a role in reconstruction. Do you want to talk a bit more about that? I've been in some sessions where Ukrainians have been arguing that that $400 billion uh, that have been seized from the central bank should be spent on rebuilding Ukraine. And a lot of American politicians seem to be keen on that, but... Yeah, I mean, it's interesting. I've heard, I've heard sort of two, two sort of sides of that. One is, you know, from a practical sense, it, it, you know, the money's there and it can be, you know, it can be, why not kind of use it for, for, for the reconstruction efforts that will definitely be needed. On the other hand, I've also heard, um, and, you know, the, from more, um, more from more of our economic economically minded uh, minded guests that um, or participants rather um, that it does raise a bit of questions about the security of your funds in the U.S. Treasury, you know, and what does that what does that mean? Um, what for, happens to the trillions of, of Chinese? Uh, right, right. Like if it can be really just kind of sanctioned, frozen, and then for the U. US um, to kind of come in and, and, and use those funds for other means, like how safe then um, are your securities? And so, and what does that do to it, to, to confidence in that realm? So I do think that that's, and I haven't heard, you know, I kind I mean, those were the sort of two things that I, that I heard, and I haven't really heard a definitive case for each, like where, where is the US going to land on this is still unclear. So um, you raised lots of things at the beginning there. One of the questions which I've seen heavily debated on the uh, on the Davos circuit is this question about um, how this war is going to end. What does victory look like? Do you want to talk a bit about some of those discussions? Also, wh- whether we're in danger of creating a nuclear war or not, whether we should? Yeah, I mean, it's interesting. There's been a few, quite a few sessions um, on, on, on that. And um, I think, I mean, we at the, in the opinion page, of the New York Times have also tried to present the different sort of arguments that are that are coming up right now. And I think the two, the sort of two main things to look out for, to think about very strongly here is um, the, you know, what is the actual danger versus the potential danger? And I think that whichever, whichever one you give more credence to kind of dictates which side of this coin you're going to land on. And so, you know, speaking to um, some guests here who obviously advocate a very, um, a much, 
you know, a stronger, robust, continued Western Western support to Ukraine. See, are 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 saying that because of they fear um, the, the actual danger that Russia uh, is posing right now to Ukraine and sort of the repercussions of of what um, of what could happen to to Ukraine if Russia were allowed to kind of gain any you know any more territory in Ukraine and realize any of its uh, of its aims there in Ukraine as well um and then there's all and there's also this issue of the potential danger which the the biggest one of all obviously being the threat of nuclear warfare and so the question there is um if if you do believe that there is a serious threat of um Putin using um or or resort resorting to some kind of nuclear warfare, then the the question becomes, well, is there something that the West can do to encourage um, a, a swifter, peaceful settlement? So there was a very heated debate between yes. two doyens of, of security studies, yeah. Graham Allison, who was your first right. kind of voice, the nuclear, uh, exactly. and Laurie Friedman, so Lawrence Friedman, who's mm-hmm. professor of war studies, who's much more on the, on the sort of hawking Right side. Um, who did you find more convincing? <laughs> it's hard. I mean, it is like I mean, we. It's something I. Th- I mean, we've uh, been thinking about, um, been thinking about very deeply um, since since this war has broken out. And it's. I think for me, it's what makes it extremely difficult. Is I. I still don't know like where Putin's state of mind is on this. And again, I think it depends on whether you believe he is a, a rational law actor and if you believe that then you make this sort of next assumption that well nuclear warfare would not be in you know would not realize any of his strategic aims either so you would tend to downplay that threat of happening in like your calculus of like how the West should kind of um, you know move forward in this in this war but if you believe you know madman illogical um, irrational sort of actor then you sort of give more weight to that and then it kind of changes your calculus again and so I have to say I haven't come down on either one I don't know about you so did you did you see Henry Kissinger when he was when he did his session I didn't see him but I read his <laughs> I read his remarks so coming here at the age of 99 what did yeah. Henry Kissinger have to say about this what side was he on well he <laughs> was on the side um, obviously of advocating for a, a a quicker peace settlement right and sort of saying that Ukraine needed to make possibly painful compromises but you know, for the greater good of the state of the world, um, one that Ukraine should make and that the U.S. should support, which, you know, is something that, as I'm sure you have kind of encountered here as well, was not the message that the Ukrainian um, Ukrainian delegation who is here like wanted to hear. And I and I met quite a few of, of um, the Ukrainian participants here who who did say that that was the actually the overriding message that they were hearing from counter like just from from other from other people in Davos, which is that they felt that like Western support might be kind 
kind of beginning to wane, losing a bit of interest. We're now three months into this war, settling into this idea that this might be a law, you know, a war of attrition going on for like another few years. And there, you know, all of the inevitable kind of issues associated with that come up, whether it's, you know, donor fatigue, attention fatigue, some other conflict will will kind of come up that will divert the world's attention. Um, And I feel the Ukrainians were feeling that very keenly. And so had, you know, where Thai kind of had had a very strong message of this shouldn't happen. It was an incredible operation. There were Ukrainian members of parliament and other people in almost every session I've Mm -hmm. been to. The Ukrainians have taken over the old Russia house and turned it into a Russian Mm -hmm. war crimes house, which on the promenade, which was pretty (laughs) impressive. And every uh, day, lots of events in that house and lots of dinners and other side events organized by various Ukrainian foundations and and, uh, donors like Victor Pinchuk. Did you... Uh, think it was effective? I mean, I think actually there, I have not been to the Russia war crimes house <laughs> yet, so I need, I need to kind of go before I leave. But I actually think their most effective message was the one that they were making uh, in sounding the alarm on the coming food crisis. Um, because I think, and I think that that has also emerged as a, as a sort of major um, theme of this year's, of this year's Davos. And the Ukrainians know that this is, you know, they have a big role to play. Um, they have all this, uh, this massive oversupply of, of wheat with nowhere to, or no way to really, sorry, with no way to export it because, you know, all the ports are, are blockaded. And so I don't know if they said this to you, but the line I kind of kept hearing was, if we, if we were to transport this grain by rail, it would take us six years. So of course we're not, you know, we're not going to do it. And, you know, seeing the unrest that's beginning to build up in a number of, um, of countries around the world over food prices, uh, well, food insecurity, um, inflation, uh, you can see that that is, I mean, that's a message that really resonated, I feel, with a lot of world leaders kind of trying to figure out how, you know, a way out of that logjam. So one of the really interesting features, I think, of, of Davos this year is it, some of the the divides in terms of how the world's looking at these issues, because there's a lot, of, you know, the organizers have put Ukraine front and center. There's a lot of European leaders, Ukrainian leaders making the sort of arguments we've been making. Um, but, uh, you know, if you look at, uh, people from other parts of the world, whether it's from the Middle East, from Africa, from a lot of the leaders that you see also from, from, uh, some of the intergovernmental organizations, um, they're much more focused on on some of the side effects, whether it's food security, whether it's the inflationary pressures as a result of rising energy prices, um, and quite keen not to to get too sucked in into the very moralized tone which uh, which Western leaders. I mean, do you want to give some examples of people that you that you were struck? What I can say about that is, I you know, I, in 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 sort of a again, like my impression from so many of the meetings here is those very people who you've just mentioned um, are very much focused on the sort of the the 
practical, uh, the practical ramifications of this war. And for so many countries, particularly um, ones that rely on like food and energy imports, it's that. And and I feel and I've heard. And who this, are they blaming? Are they blaming the Russians or are they blaming the West? I don't, there's no blame in that. Again, like they're not focused on the moralized part of this argument, right? But there is this question of you know, and I've heard and I've heard that um, and again in my conversations about if nothing changes, like the the the, the last quarter of this year, the beginning quarter of next year, we could find a lot of governments falling um, over a lot a lot of popular unrest. Arab Spring 2.0. Well, I don't know about that. Um, and we all know how that ended as well. So it's not, I don't know that it'll be Arab Spring 2.0, but we could potentially see like some serious, serious unrest. We're already see, beginning to see bits of that play out, whether it's in um, Sri Lanka or in um, in some African countries as well that are really feeling um, the bite of this. So the other big topic, which is always a leitmotif of Davos, is the, the question of, of, of climate change. Um, that was the big theme in the, the, the last in-person one, which they had before COVID mm-hmm. uh, struck. Um, that's obviously been tied up with, with, with the discussion about energy and energy, energy supply and prices. I went to some very interesting sessions um, um, with different people from around the world talking about that uh, from the International Energy Agency as well as ministers from India and from uh, and and the German Vice Chancellor Robert Harbeck was talking about it. Did you did you see a b- bunch of those discussions? Um, I yeah, I mean I I listened I listened to a bunch of those discussions, but I will say that to me the biggest impression I had about 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 how climate change was discussed here wasn't again it, it cut, to me at least I'm curious how you saw it, but to me it still felt very theoretical, like very theoretical compared to the fact that like India's experiencing the worst heat waves now. Um, so many, you know, and so so many people suffer suffering from that. We're also, you know, we're seeing Davos in in, in late. May. I mean, the weather has been crazy here as well. And yet I, I do feel that so many of the discussions seem to be high level minded discussions about climate change as opposed to kind of practically or practical minded solutions um, about how to tackle it. And also very much focused on what can we do, you know, what the world, what different countries can do to kind of, you know, either mitigate or stop the effects there, as opposed to, well, is there a way to reverse them? Like, I'm, I'm surprised that, like, we're kind of only focused on this idea of net zero neutrality, but we're not, and carbon offsets, but we're not talking about, are there some areas in which there can actually be reversals? And I feel like Davos is the perfect venue for that but it was just very much focused on you know what what i just said like the mitigating sort of effects i i think one of the most interesting discussions i had was was um where they were looking at how all of these different crises that we've just been talking about are are linked up with each other you have the, the the sort of surge in energy prices you've got the links from that into our food supply and food prices through fertilizers and, and other byproducts of, of energy production, but also how that then gets reconciled with, with the carbon transition and with inflation and how 
the danger of, of trying to solve one problem that you end up making all the other ones worse. Right. Um, so there's a really interesting debate about whether the the effects of of, um, of Ukraine and our response to that is going to help or hinder the energy transition. And in the long run, I think Robert Harbeck and other people were kind of arguing, I think quite convincingly that that um, there is a sort of win-win situation where by moving towards more renewable sources of energy, you will also decrease at least European dependence on, on Russia. But um, in the short term, there are really tough choices to be made about extending the life of coal plants and, and other kinds of things. So you could end up with a, with a sort of reversal in the short term, but a longer term uh, refocusing on this energy transition. But where did you where I mean, Europe is obviously an interesting case, particularly right now. But I feel like the big the kind of big elephant in the room, not this guy, can we still say that, Um, is China, like where China fits in all that. Of course, China is also not present um, really this year's. um, There's some academics and and other people, but there are any senior leaders. And, I, you know, they're a big part of this um, of this conversation. So it's also which I feel is actually kind of why. I felt that the climate change conversation was a little bit like left me wanting more because a big part, like a big kind of player in that in that space is not present. And unless I and I and and unless you kind of understand um, where China really is on that, whether it's like in in terms of its its coal consumption as well, um, to what extent, as you as you know, I mean, since the it, it has been still um, buying Russian. Um, Russian oil, where, you know, a lot depends on where China comes down on this. And we, you know, sadly didn't get those answers. So while we're talking about China, um, it's true there aren't any major leaders here, but it doesn't mean that people aren't obsessed with the idea of a new Cold War between China and America. Did you go to some of those discussions? I, it's funny, it's one of the, you know, again, like the major themes that I am obsessed with as well. And of course, Um, you know, was given particular resonance because at the beginning of this week, when President Biden uh, was um, was in Asia, you know, he made that uh, comment on how that the U.S. would would militarily defend Taiwan. Um, And that raised that raised a lot of um, that raised obviously a lot of, a lot of questions again like how far is the U.S. now moving from strategic you know the long term the long time um, strategic ambiguity policy um, how China would read this is this like an effective um, deterrence policy from from President Biden you know the comment was made in the context of um, of the Ukraine war generally I think and so you know it it is kind of more focused on um, on that right now. And I, I had, I had some interesting conversations where, you know, trying to kind of understand where, where, where the U S is now, um, in terms of kind of to what extent it sees China as a rival, but is the, or is there like a moment now, um, that the U S has potentially missed where it could, um, where it could try and secure more cooperation with, with China, given, um, given Russia's war in Ukraine. And, you 
know, hearing a lot of these ideas that, you know, President Xi Jinping must not be very happy with Russia's conduct so far, um, putting him in a sort of difficult position, obviously, given they had this announcement of this strategic alliance or partnership right before the um, um, the war broke Without out. limits. Without limits. There you go. So I think, you know, I think the Cold War conversation has moved on a little bit. Well, interestingly, a lot of the leaders from other parts of the world are pretty terrified. I've been at panels where, you know, I saw the Saudi foreign minister, the uh, Pakistani uh, minister of state for foreign affairs, Korean politicians, all saying that they thought the idea of blocks and of being forced to choose between China and America was literally an existential threat to their country. Yes, absolutely. Um, I think that is a, I think that is, that is the biggest fear for a lot of these countries. And again, like it is going to um, come down to interest interests, right? And I think that's where, um, again, a lot of the critique from in, in terms of how the U.S. is seeing uh, or how the U.S. has been framing um, to its allies, you know, it's either it's either China or it's us, like puts a lot of these countries, particularly the ones that you've um, that you've just mentioned in a difficult position. But when it comes down to these countries, like, and those are also some a lot of interesting conversations that I've had, where is their interest? Like their interest ultimately is going to be a lot of these countries, their biggest trading partner is China. It's yeah. not It's not the US. So it's going to come down to that. And just one more thing, that's you also kind of see that playing out in how a lot of these countries have navigated um, their position on the war in Ukraine as well. So we're coming to the end of our time here, but we haven't spoken about Europe yet. We're the European Council on Foreign Relations. Um, we haven't yet seen the German Chancellor Olaf Scholz, who's about to descend here to give his big speech. But to what extent do you think Europe was a feature of the discussions here? I mean, again, because of the war in Ukraine, it did, you know, it felt like Europe did feature quite, quite strongly, uh, quite strongly in conversations here. Europe has a big role to play, especially when it comes to the conversation on um, its energy, its energy dependence, its ener- energy diversification. And I feel that's that's really where we heard it. And of course, also in the context of NATO, with the sort of increased, um, you know, increased support, I think, around the idea of NATO as a defensive alliance. And of course, with, um, you know, Finland and Sweden also um, applying to, to NATO membership and sort of this idea of what does sort of a reinvigorated Europe mean? What does a stronger um, Europe mean? And and especially like what does European defense, uh, European defense mean? I think that was another really big theme that um, struck me. And there was also, so I think that's right, lots of questions about the European security order, Finns going around talking about NATO membership, a lot of focus also on the idea of enlargement, both for for, um, for Ukraine, for Moldova and other countries that are terrified about events which are going on in Kiev. But also uh, there are a lot of Balkan leaders here who are, who are kind of focused on that. One of the most interesting comments I had was from, was in one of the private sec- sessions from somebody who will have to remember nameless, but he said that Europeans have discovered through the war in Ukraine that they were a superpower, they just didn't know it, and that their superpower came from their unity, which uh, was surprising, and that 
um, the, they are constantly in fear of that disappearing and crumbling. And I think that was one of the questions uh, around here, um, but that it might end up being more um, long lived than uh, many people fear. Anyway, we'll return to that in future uh, episodes. We got one thing left to do on this podcast, which I should have warned you about beforehand, which we typically end with a bookshelf segment. So what's on your bookshelf, Yara? Um, recently, uh, I picked up Our Country Friends by Gary Steingart. Um, it's a really, really riveting read. I try to read more fiction these days because our, you know, we're so we're so focused and our days are so consumed by, you know, m- mostly depressing real world events. I think Gary Steingart is a really great is a really great writer. And yet this book that I've chosen is also sort of a COVID satire. So I'm not sure how escapist it is, but the writing is brilliant. Great. Well, thank you very much. We'll put up links to uh, all the recommendations we made on our website at www.ecfr.eu slash podcast. If you've enjoyed listening to us, please do subscribe to the podcast on whatever platform you've used to to get it from and while you're there you might as well give us a positive review and a five-star rating we won't complain and it will help other people come to the podcast but for now from yara and myself mark leonard at the top of the davos mountains well actually in the conference center it's goodbye the researcher of ecfr's podcast is lucy halpenthal and our editor is marlene Riedel. <laughs>